The title for today's sermon is Trial of the Millennium and is taken from Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Well, as you probably recognize, I'm not really concerned with the outer trappings. I'm concerned about the inner man. I trust you are as well. Uh, this morning, Sue Butler, as you probably noticed, walked out. She uh, had a message that her mother, um, oh, Midge, right? Yeah, Midge had fell. She's, as we learned this morning, she's almost 96 years old, so she's gone to meet her at the uh, IR. So we're going to pray for Midge and ask God to uh, heal her and guide and direct us in our study. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. We pray for those that are close to us. We think of Midge this morning and ask that you would heal her from her fall. Help her, Lord, not to be seriously injured. We pray for us this morning that as we have fallen throughout the week and fallen into sin, that you would heal us as we ask for your forgiveness. Help us, Lord, to look at these principles from the Word of God, from the life of our Savior, and apply them to our lives, we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As you already know, I grew up in Chicago, and I learned while I was living there about a fascinating murder that took place and a trial that followed it in 1924. Apparently, two gifted young men by the name of Leopold and Loeb conspired together to commit the perfect murder. After months of planning, they kidnapped a young 14-year-old boy named Bobby Franks and murdered him and discarded his body. Both Leopold and Loeb were from wealthy Chicago families who then hired together the famed defense lawyer Clarence Darrow to defend them. Soon the murder trial began to be called the trial of the century. What's noteworthy about this trial is that Clarence Darrow's summation has highly influenced the liberal criticism that we hear today about capital punishment. He claimed that capital punishment was retributive rather than rehabilitative. In the end, both of the killers were sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. However, Loeb was killed by his cellmate in 1936, and Leopold went on to be paroled in 1958 after 34 years of incarceration. The phrase trial of the century has come to be used to describe any infamous trial back in the 20th century. It was used in order to heighten the importance of the event for the newspapers and the, and the television It's not an objective observation, but rather a subjective one. F. Lee Bailey, the wily defense lawyer, observed at the end of O.J. Simpson's trial, another trial of the century, that this was typical American hyperbole akin to calling any circus the greatest show on earth. The very first trial to be called a trial of the century was in 1907 when multimillionaire Harry Thaw murdered his wife's lover, And the trial turned out to be a wonderful tale of great wealth, degeneracy, chorus girls, the theater, and even the underworld. Numerous trials have been labeled that, the trial of the century. So a panel of scholars recently got together to develop a list of notable trials of the century. The list includes the Henry Thaw trial, the Sacco and Vincenti murder trial, the aforementioned Leopold and Loeb murder trial, the Scopes and Monkey trial, The Lindbergh kidnapping case, the Nuremberg trials, the Adolf Eichmann and Klaus Barbie trials, the O.J. Simpson trial, the Saddam Hussein trial, the pedophile trial of 
Michael Jackson in the Casey Anthony murder case in Florida just a few years ago. Now, there are others that I didn't mention because they're too obscure and you might not have heard of them. These trials all have several commonalities to them. They usually include a famous participant, money, sex, murder, and the unfair implementation of the legal system. But they pale in comparison. They pale in comparison to the trial of the millennium. That is when our Lord Jesus Christ was tried six times. Now, last week we reviewed the three religious trials held by the high priest and the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night and into the early morning. The result was predictable from the get-go. Jesus was condemned to death by the Sanhedrin for his supposed uh, crime of blasphemy. I assume that it was Jesus' rebukes of those in the religious uh, hierarchy that made them angry. And uh, the fact that he had hit them in the pocket, they had lost revenues when he had driven the money changers and the sellers out of the temple. But the fact remained that only the Roman governor governor could implement capital punishment, so the Sanhedrin was forced to, to move this trial to Pilate for the first of three secular trials. The governor, Pilate, had to travel from his provincial seat in Caesarea, and if you've been to Israel, you know that's on the Mediterranean, to Jerusalem, a distance of about 45 miles, in order to be in the capital to oversee the Passover celebration. He came because it was a heightened time of nationalistic tensions, and it was the perfect opportunity for troublemakers to cause problems, and he was there to manage it. The expectation was, just as we have an expectation that something could happen on September 11th, of possible terrorists attacking Roman soldiers or Roman guards in their towers. And since Jesus was a high-profile rabbi, he needed to be handled delicately because he was looked at as being one of those revolutionaries. So under the cover of dark, the Sanhedrin holds its trials, and then after taking matters into their own hand. They're not able to accomplish their goal. They try to manipulate the legal system through the man named Pilate, the the head of the Roman seat in Israel. So this morning we will see that Jesus is taken to Pilate. He's followed by his accusers who have in tow the temple police and the Roman guard. And they will get their order to execute Jesus. In a few months, we will see in the book of Acts, the Sanhedrin abandons this tactic completely. They no longer take the accused to Pilate for his approval. Instead, they just pick up stones in the street and they stone Stephen to death. So they, at some point, forget about the protocol. It's just a a lot of trouble and they just do what they want to do. But for now, they bring Jesus to Pilate, who they want him to condemn Jesus to death. But since blasphemy is a religious offense, they can't use that as a crime against the state of Rome. So the charge must be changed in order to fit with a secular government. Pilate, after all, wouldn't give a hoot about the squabbles over fairy tales amongst the Jews. So they needed to bring a charge that had merit in the secular culture. One that would get the procurator's attention. 
So the charge that they lodged against Jesus must be entirely political. What they came up with shows the deviancy of their minds and, as well, their ingenuity. They will show a willingness to collaborate with anyone in order to get what they want, even the Roman government. So, the old saying that you've heard many times fits here, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Sadducees hated the Pharisees, and the Pharisees hated the Sadducees, and they both hated the Romans. But when it was time to get something that they all wanted, they would, consp- they would conspire together to eliminate a common threat. So Jesus is brought before Pilate, as we read in Luke chapter 23, said 22 on the screen by mistake, but it's 23. And if you need to use the Pew Bible, you can find this on page 1054. Luke 23, and we begin, of course, with verse 1. There it says, Then the whole body of them, that refers to the Sanhedrin, the temple police, the hangers-ons, and the Roman authorities, the Roman soldiers, then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. As you know, there were 70 men that made up the Sanhedrin plus the chief priest. So all of the toadies get up at the same time and they make their way to Pontius Pilate at the fortress Antonia, which is just a hop, skip, and a jump away from uh, where the Sanhedrin met at the great hewn stone wall. We know that Pilate, the Roman governor or the procurator of Palestine, reigned from 26 to 36 A.D., He was in Jerusalem, as I said, to watch over the Passover, to keep an eye on everything that was going on. Pilate, being a politician at heart, had one aim, and that was to promote himself to higher office. So his main motivation in acting the way that he will act is for his own advantage, so that his image is not marred with the authorities in Rome. One of the big problems with Pilate, however, is that he didn't like the Jews, Correspondingly, the Jews did not like Pilate. Early on in his tenure, Pilate did many things to anger the Jews. First of all, he sent soldiers into the temple with their pagan military standards, which bore idolatrous emblems, which was a no-no with the Jews. They were outraged, and they protested violently. And in fact, at that time, Pilate threatened to have them all killed. The Jews accommodated him by laying prone on the temple platform and bearing their necks for Roman swords. But Pilate relented, not wanting to risk an open rebellion and making him look weak back to the emperor in Rome. So he lost face at this time with the Jewish populace. Next, he outraged the Jews by financing an adequate that ran from the the mountaintops to the Jewish temple site, and he financed it by stealing monies directly from the temple treasury. The Jews again rioted, and once again Pilate threatened to send in the soldiers and slaughter them, but this time, instead of relenting, he did. And he received a severe rebuke from the emperor. And in verse 13, uh, or chapter 13 of the book of Luke, you'll probably remember an incident that Jesus raised in which Pilate had some rebels killed. They were from Galilee, as you'll recall, and he had their blood mixed with the blood sacrifices of the animals at the temple. A great sacrilege. sacrilege. And this infuriated all the Jewish people. So the relationship with Pilate and the Jewish people is at low ebb. He couldn't afford another incident to take place, otherwise he would face retribution from Rome. Even though he hated the Jews, he was going to placate them for his own sake. 
These are the circumstances in which the secular trials of Jesus will take place. It's quite probable that Pilate was aware that Jesus had been arrested the night before in Gethsemane on the 14th of Nisan since Roman soldiers accompanied the temple police to make the arrest. So Pilate was not surprised when he woke up in the morning and the Sanhedrin was there handing over to him a capital case for his determination. So to let me review with you once again that the Roman procurator's main responsibilities as the governor of Judea and Palestine was to collect the taxes owed to the Roman Empire and to keep the Pax Romana or the peace in his region. So it's quite likely that Pilate, being in Jerusalem, had already on his schedule that morning other judicial hearings for insurrectionists such as Barabbas. Almost said Barnabas. Barabbas. We know this because two other criminals were executed along with Jesus for those charges. So Jesus is brought before Pilate and the Sanhedrin Then, that's the 70 Jewish religious elites that run the Jewish uh, state government. They bring three charges against Jesus, as we see outlined in verse 2. John tells us in his book, in chapter 18 and verse 30, that Jesus was first of all called an evildoer. Now in verse 2 we read the charges. They accused him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding others to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. The religious leaders, leaders who made up the Sanhedrin, believed that through this process of going to Pilate, they could rid themselves of Jesus, even if it meant that they had to tell a few lies. They first of all say that Jesus threatened their way of life. And that was true. Jesus also threatened their leadership and their popularity with the people. But most of all, he threatened their concept of the Mosaic law system as well as their way of life and their making tons of money at the temple selling sacrificial animals. So they whittle these charges down to political charges, that they want to assert that Jesus is a threat to the culture of Israel and to the Roman Empire because he's a subversive, an insurrectionist. Now, this shouldn't be hard to believe, or wouldn't be hard to believe for Pilate, because there were frequent revolts against Rome. There's history of them in Israel. The first charge then states that Jesus was subverting the nation. It's a general complaint involves disturbing the peace or breaking the Pax Romano, if you will. And as you know, Pilate, as I said, was charged with keeping the peace in his region. So they assert that Jesus is an agitator who also encouraged this insurrection by encouraging other Jews to not pay their taxes. They were to refuse to pay their taxes So they're saying, see, Pilate, what kind of man he really is? He's the first member of the Tea Party. Doesn't want to pay taxes. They suggest that Jesus is in the midst of the nation trying to gather together a group of men who would then overthrow 
the Roman government. So he's planning an insurrection, if you will, against Rome. That's their charge. This is clear, if you look down in verse 5, where they contend that Jesus was stirring up the people, if you will. So what proof were there? was there? Well, they didn't really have any proof of this other than Jesus' claim. If you look in the text here, it says the proof is that he claimed to be the Christ or claimed to be a king. They have to explain to Pilate that this term Christ means king. He's trying to bring down the Roman government. He wants them to stop paying their taxes and he wants them to make himself the king. But the reader who's been following along with Luke in his twenty. Two chapters know that this is not so. For Jesus, as you will recall, we just studied a few weeks ago, that Jesus told his disciples, he commanded them, in fact, to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And to this charge of stirring up the people, he did claim to be the Christ. But Luke explains to Pilate that that does not mean king. He explains to his readers that that does not mean king in the sense that he wanted to be the king of the empire. But they tend to try and twist and turn his words. They want to turn him in this, into this reactionary, this revolutionary. But everyone knows that was not so. The Lord had taught his followers that he was not trying to overthrow the government. In fact, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Remember? He said, if I wanted to overthrow the government, I could call down angels. Do you recall that? And they would fight for me. Luke's readers knew, and we know, that Jesus wasn't subverting Rome. He wasn't trying to cause an insurrection. And this was a complete and total distortion. He did not tell anyone not to pay taxes. In fact, he told them the exact opposite. So the Sanhedrin comes to Pilate with basically a list of lies. He's a resistant fighter, when in actuality Jesus wasn't a fighter, but he was the Lamb of God. With one look, Pilate knew this was true. He could take a look at Jesus and see that he was not an insurrectionist, that he was not a zealot. He was not trying to overthrow the government. This was totally ridiculous. But when it came to that charge of being a king, Pilate had to give that a little bit more examination. It's problematic. Even some commentators today express the idea that your charge might have merit. Well, Pilate follows the Roman three-step process, judicial process, that he had been taught in proconsul school somewhere in Rome. The first step is to have the charges presented to him in a formal manner. The second Uh, was to undertake a personal examination of those charges by calling witnesses and looking at the evidence. And finally, it was his responsibility to render a fair verdict under Roman law. That's the way it's supposed to work. But Pilate completely blows off the first two charges, seeing them as being bogus. There's no witnesses or evidence to substantiate what they said. Both he and the Sanhedrin and everyone else knew those first two charges were false. But the charge of Jesus being the king, that's what he had to examine. He had to be on the outlook, the lookout, I should say, for revolutionaries. His job was to keep the peace, and he had to make sure that Jesus was not fomenting some kind of a rebellion. So in verse 3, we read that Pilate examined Jesus by probing this question. Are you the king of the Jews? Notice Pilate's 
wording. It's deliberate and limiting in this question. This question is framed to limit the sphere of who Jesus was claiming himself to be. He asked him, are you, are you the king of the Jews? Not are you the king of the Roman Empire? Not are you the king of Mesopotamia? Not are you the king of the Levant? As is being so popularly uh, elicited today from our government. Pilate doesn't ask Jesus if he wants to start a caliphate or raise an army to march on Rome. He asks him, are you the king of the Jews? These simple people that I have no respect for. By the way, did you know that there are only 6 million people, Jewish people living in Israel right now? In the United States, there's 6.7 million Jews living. There's more Jews here than in Israel. And back in that day, their number of Jews was even more minuscule. Very small number of people. Here's my point. Pilate is saying, this guy wants to be the king of this meaningless, small tribe out here in the middle of the Middle East. Nobody cares. And so he asks him this question. He, 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 he frames it in such a manner to, to limit the importance of Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you claiming to be that? This insignificant people. And Jesus responds with a very enigmatic answer. In your Bible, it's, it might have the words, yes, I am, but that's not really what it says in the original Greek. If you were to literally translate it into English, it would be, It is as you say. So in answering Jesus, in Jesus answering this way, he doesn't validate what Pilate is asking. He puts the onus on the governor himself. And this will be clear as we see the importance of this at Jesus' crucifixion. It is as you say. You'll recall that Pilate has written above the name of Jesus on a title list, is what it's called, a board that's above Jesus' head. It says, King of the Jews in three different languages. So Pilate comes to the conclusion that Jesus is who he said he was. But Jesus never, ever asserts that he is the King of the Jews. He just says, it is as you say. This answer appears in all four Gospels in the exact Greek words, suijesus, which, suijesus, which can be translated in a number of different ways, but you must understand the context dictates it. And so it's along this line of, if you say so. So the Sanhedrin and, the, and Pilate could take that answer any way they wanted. Jesus had used these exact same words when he answered the chief the high priest, uh, at the uh, last religious trial, if you say so. So you could take that answer to be, yes, I am the Christ, the Son of God, or you could take it as, well, we'll see. So Pilate took it, yes, and uh, the Sanhedrin used it to paint Jesus as the wannabe king who threatened to overthrow the government. We know Jesus never, however, encouraged military action of any kind. He always turned his disciples to a peaceful uh, type of lifestyle. Turn the other cheek. Give your cloak. If somebody asks you to walk one mile, 
Go with them another mile. So Jesus never advocates governmental change, insurrection. He is not who they claimed he, he was. And in verse 4, we see the conclusion that Pilate comes to when he says, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate says this to the chief priests in the crowd. This guy's not guilty. He's innocent. This is the first time Pilate will, pro- will proclaim Jesus' innocence, and that's very important. He declares that Jesus is innocent several more times in this text that we are looking at. And then King Herod will proclaim Jesus' innocence in verse 15. And then if we look down in this very same text, Jesus is hung on the cross with two other thieves, and one of them proclaims Jesus' innocence. And finally, for good measure, a Roman centurion who has just been in charge of crucifying the Lord will say that Jesus is innocent of all charges. Luke is driving the point home that Jesus is an innocent man being condemned for the whole world. Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. I find this case to have no merit at all. So the official legal verdict of the Roman government is that Jesus is innocent. The case should have been dropped at that point in time. There was no evidence. There was was no sufficient evidence to convict Jesus of any crime. And yet, it continues to a second trial and a third trial. Pilate concludes that the Lord Jesus was not a threat to Rome and should have dismissed the case But the Jewish religious leaders just would not let it go. Look with me at verse 5. They kept on insisting over and over and over again, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from the Galilee, even as far as this place. Well, that was the complaint that uh, really got Pilate's attention, that he was stirring up the people, not only in the big city, but way out there in the boondocks in the Galilee. And this stresses, I believe, Jesus' importance throughout all of Israel. He was influencing the thinking of the people of the land. He's upsetting all the people, say the Sanhedrin, and something must be done about it. But in that statement of the Sanhedrin, they dropped this little tidbit. You might miss it. But they tell Pilate something about Jesus' background. They say that he started in Galilee, that Jesus was from Galilee. And this would further their goal to have him executed. I believe they intended it that way, that Jesus was from this place called Galilee, which everyone knew was a hotbed of sedition. All of the revolts started in Galilee. And I'm sure they were well aware that the king of Galilee, Herod Antipas, was actually in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. Now, you all know that Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. He inherited his land, his kingship, on the death of his father. His father's kingdom was split into four. And this is the same Herod Antipas who married Herodias, his brother's wife, after they had had a torrid and public affair and John the Baptist had confronted him, rebuked him in public, that led to his arrest and his eventual beheading. Well, one day, Herod got drunk and it was his birthday party and he rashly promised that he would give his stepdaughter, Herodias, anything she wanted if she would dance suggestively 
before him. And she does. But she doesn't ask for half the kingdom as uh, Antipas had promised. Instead, she asked for John the baptizer's head on a platter. In order for him not to lose face, Herod complies and brings the head of John. Now Pilate has a problem. What's he going to do with Jesus? And he hears that term Galilee and things click in his heart and his mind. He knows that he can't get involved in this case. It's going to be bad news for him. In fact, another gospel tells us that his wife warned him not to get involved with this because of a dream that she had. So he thinks to himself, Galilee, ha ha, this guy is from a different region. I know, I'll send him to Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee. And that's what he does. Pilate passes the buck hoping that Herod will give Jesus the same treatment that Herod Antipas gave John the Baptist. Beheadings didn't start in this century. They go all the way back a long time ago. And now in verses 6 through 12, we find here in this section, which is unique to Luke, what takes place before Herod. This is the only place this is recorded, not in any of the other gospel records. So when Pilate heard this, that he was from Galilee, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And obviously he was told yes. Pilate's ears perked up, if you will. And then he asked, you mean this guy's from Galilee, not from here? Let's send him over to Herod. So they do that. He orders him to be sent to Herod Antipas. And verse 7, because Herod's jurisdiction covered that area. And Herod himself was also, we learn in verse 7, was in Jerusalem at this time for the celebration of the Passover. So he's taken across town, the entourage in tow behind him, and he has stood before Herod. Wily old Pilate has gotten himself out of this hole that he was in. He's passed the buck, and he has sent him, sent him on. Herod, being part Jewish had to show up in Jerusalem for the Passover. He had to make a show of it. He had to be at the feast because all Jewish males were required to attend the three feasts in Israel if they lived in the land. So Jesus, the temple police, the Roman soldiers, and the Sanhedrin take off for Herod's upper palace just a short distance away. And there he will face the charges again brought by the Sanhedrin. They are not elicited, though, in this text. We read in verse 8 that Herod was glad. He was happy. He was overjoyed, in fact, when Jesus showed up. For he wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about Jesus and was hoping that he could see a miracle. The text says, hoping to see some sign performed by Jesus. Obviously, Jesus' fame had spread all across Judea, Galilee, the whole of Israel. He was known as being a magician, a mystic, a miracle worker, someone who does signs. And Herod wanted to see them. He wanted a sign or miracle performed by Jesus in front of him. This hope had been going on for a long time. There's several places in the book of Luke where we learn that Herod wanted to meet with Jesus, wanted to have him stand before him. He wanted to see what Jesus could really do. You can look in Luke 13, 31 and find that. But most of all, Herod wanted Jesus to appear before him because he was just curious. You know, he wanted to see this magician. He wanted to see if everything that was said about Jesus was true or not. So he comes before Herod 
and he asked Jesus to do a sign, a miraculous event. This is like a circus. Entertainment purposes for Herod. Like many people today who go to church that want to see some kind of entertainment, some kind of sign done before them. We read in verse 9 that Herod questioned Jesus at some length. But Jesus answered nothing. So here's a man who wants to be entertained, who wants to see some magic done, and he keeps asking, peppering Jesus for something, and Jesus just stands there stone-faced before him. This was a one-way conversation. Here it asked the questions, and Jesus stood there mute. This went on for a while until Herod got tired of the game. Jesus remained silent as a sheep before his shears. So Herod cuts the interview process short. There was no show to see, so let's just get rid of this guy. In verse 10, we read that the entourage, however, wasn't quiet. Herod asked all the questions. Jesus said nothing. But the chief priests and the scribes, they kept accusing Jesus vehemently of his crimes against the state. They must have realized at some point that Herod was going to tire of this game and just move on. So they keep raising these charges that were put before Pilate, I assume, and maybe some other unspecified charges that had to do with their religion. But nothing worked. Nothing they said, no matter how they twisted and turned the truths about Jesus, twisted truths into lies or falsehoods, they couldn't sway Herod. And in verse 11, we read that his patience ran out. Herod, along with his soldiers, treated Jesus with contempt. They mocked him. They dressed him up in a gorgeous robe, and they sent him back to Pilate. When Jesus wouldn't answer any questions, when he wouldn't do any tricks, when he wouldn't put on a show for him, the man ran out of patience. And he got angry a little bit. And so he started to mock Jesus and had his temple or police or the Roman soldiers, whoever it was that was there, he had them mistreat Jesus. And then he called for one of his servants to go get one of his old kingly robes and they dressed Jesus in it. But the Sanhedrin kept making charges and accusations against Jesus. They couldn't let this go by. Well, the conclusion is to this that Herod will pronounce Jesus innocent in verse 15. We'll look at that next week. But, like I said, he first vents his anger a little bit. We see his innocence um, now has come full swing Full circle. If you know the Old Testament, you know that Deuteronomy says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. It's come complete circle now. Both the secular and religious circles have found Jesus to be innocent. Herod, the king of the Jews, in reality, had found him innocent and passes him back on to his enemy, Pilate, as we learn in verse, 13, in verse 12. Herod and Pilate now became friends with one another on this very day, before they had been enemies of each other. We don't know what caused their problem, why they were enemies, but this event coalesces their friendship with one another. These two men, wicked in their own ways, now became partners in doing evil against Jesus. 
Pilate had determined, however, that Jesus was not guilty, and still he wouldn't risk his reputation or his position to protect an innocent man. Herod knew that Jesus was innocent and still could care less about him and sent him back to Pilate after he abused him and was not amused by him. So, these men that were enemies before were now friends, brought together by their evil actions, vented at Jesus. Herod was pleased. I'm sure that Pilate had acknowledged his authority by sending Jesus to him. And Pilate honored him in doing so. Now he returns that favor. He sends Jesus back to Pilate and he honors him saying, Hey, you do with them what you want. You give a verdict however you see it. I'm washing my hands of this. It's now with you, Pilate. But I agree with whatever you do. Next week, we will see the implications of this in the second and the third trial, or the third trial, I should say, of Jesus before Pilate where he is condemned. How does this relate to us? What does this mean to you and me? What does this event in the life of Jesus, how does that impact us? I think one of the purposes that Luke wrote this out in this manner was to demonstrate the complete innocence of Jesus. The others left out the proclamation of Herod. But Luke includes it. Luke includes the proclamation by the thief and by the Roman centurion of Jesus' innocence. What we see here is that an innocent man died for you and me. A spotless lamb is gone and died in our stead at Calvary. But the model that Jesus portrays as an innocent lamb being slaughtered is what should gain our attention. He was crucified. He was abused for false accusations. How were we to react when we are accused falsely? This world is filled with troubles. This world is filled with evil people. There are many pilots out there. There are many Herods who only think of their agenda, their only goods, and we will bump up against those people. How are we to react when we are falsely accused? The Lord Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. We can see in Jesus a model for dealing with the wrongs of the world, the false accusations, the troubles that come into our life that we do not merit. We should follow his example. He didn't raise a defense. He didn't call upon a lawyer. He faced the troubles of the world knowing that his father had overcome those troubles through his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus stood before Pilate and Herod, and both men mocked him and condemned him. I don't know about you, but it's been my experience as a believer to be mocked and condemned by people. Just driving down the street, you can be mocked and condemned by the by the. Uh, bumper stickers on people's cards. I don't worship a dead carpenter. You know, those kind of uh, stickers. Yet, our Lord Jesus stood up like a man and took it and didn't raise his defense or open his mouth. It's a model that we should look to as a guiding light in our lives. In human terms, we can't explain why people do things. 
Why did the Jewish authorities hate Jesus so much? Why would they go to such lengths to crucify Jesus? You know, even today, the Jews don't want to be known as the, those who put to death the Lord Jesus. They deny that. And yet here they stooped to the lowest place that a Jew could, actually coming into partnership with the Gentile to commit murder, to get what they want. Religious people, religious people, will do anything to get what they want. They'll mistreat people. They'll say things about you that are untrue, that they know, in fact, to be a lie because they have an agenda that they're trying to accomplish. We have a classic example of that, of what's going on in the Middle East right now with ISIS. But we must take the eternal view. This life is short. Life is unfair. What happened to Jesus was completely unfair. Do you expect any better treatment? Luke wants his readers to look at life on a divine level rather than a human level. Jesus' death was ultimately accomplishing the good of God for all people, for all men. When we suffer injustice, when we are mistreated, when we are accused things wrongly, then we must understand that it is part of God's eternal plan to change our character to be more like Jesus Christ. Even when an official of the government is used to condemn us, to mistreat us, to humiliate us, to mock us, we must remember that our Lord Jesus suffered in that way. We can see in our own politicians today this is happening They mock Christianity. They say terrible things about our faith and about what we believe and hold dear. We must stop looking to the government to meet our needs. We must stop looking to the government to end things like discrimination or hostilities between people or environmental issues that don't exist. We must start looking to self and remember that the only way to change this world is one heart at a time, one person at a time. It is you and me through the power of the Holy Spirit taking the truth of God that can change people and their thinking. We cannot trust the government or hope for the government to do it. We must do this ourselves, not as good citizens of the United States, but as good citizens of heaven. Let us pay our taxes do right, not subvert the government, or claim to be something we are not. Let us just be men of God, ambassadors of the king, even if it might cost us our heads. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect spotless lamb who gave his life in our place, a substitute dying for our sins. Help us, Father, to live like Jesus lived. Help us to see in his model the right way to live. Help us, Father, to suffer even unjustly without complaint. Help us, Father, to do so in a way that honors you. We pray, Lord, that we might stand as men of God and proclaim the truth about Christ, even if it costs us. Help us, Father, to do so because when 12 men followed that pattern. They changed the world. Help us, Lord, to stop thinking in terms of politics. Help us to start thinking in terms of relationships. Help us, Father, to reach out to those around us to touch hearts and minds. 
with the gospel of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.